Well, Violet Vanderweide started her first day at her new job in the CNN promotional office. And she was on her way to her dream, being a news anchor. And when she came to work that first day, she realized the big promotion was handing out these coloring books and colored pencils uh, to children. And her task, her first day, was to sharpen all these colored pencils. And the number that she has in her head, and has stuck to her head all through her work career, is 436. Because that's how many pencils it takes to break down an electric pencil sharpener. Uh, And she went through four pencil sharpeners uh, that day, uh, and her whole day was filled with just sharpening pencils. Well, do you feel like work is like that some days? The monotony? Get me out of here. Where am I going? Am I just sharpening pencils all day long? What do you think about when you think about work? Emails, changing diapers, phone calls, cutting rock, making cabinets, doing laundry, writing sermons every week, (laughs) spreadsheets, taking out the garbage, pencil after pencil. That's a good question for us today. How are we to look at this thing called work? As Christians, how are we to examine our jobs? Well, should we find out together? Let's do it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's printed in your worship guide. You can also find it on page 987 of these black Bibles. And let's follow along as we look at 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The word of the Lord. If you're just joining us, we've been going through this letter, a letter to a church that's in a city, a city called Thessalonica. And there's some amazing things that have happened in this church community. See, Paul and his companions were there and and preached about Christ and Jesus uh, in a, a large metropolitan city of that day. And people believed. And the city was so enraptured in this that they said, These messengers are turning the world upside down. And it really changed people's lives. And even though that 
Paul and his companions got kicked out of the city because the message was again turning the world upside down. The church flourished. And what's interesting is that this church flourished despite them being so different from those around them. I had Danny come and preach last week, and we talked about topics. And uh, you probably saw the angle that he took. He took it from 1 Peter, which is actually really good. It kind of ties into Thessalonians, again, the Roman world, about how as Christians, we're peculiar. Being a Christian is being a peculiar kind of person. Different. And that's what is happening in, in this city and in this church. These are peculiar people. And one peculiar thing is their love. He says in verse 9 again, now concerning brotherly love. This is the Greek word where we get Philadelphia. It's uh, a Greek and Roman understanding of the love that siblings had towards each other. It was family love. But here, Paul throughout this letter has hijacked this word from Roman culture and said, guess what? That doesn't just define love between siblings. It defines love between people in the church. They are brothers and sisters. This is a family. In a society that was divided, like the Roman world, there's Greeks, Greek history, which was where Paul's writing, Romans, Macedonians, which is a specific Greek person, barbarians from outside the Roman world, slaves, free. All these people were in this city of Thessalonica. But in the church, they weren't divided. They were equals. If you read some of the ancient writings of the pagans, I'm not using that in a pejorative way. The pagans were outside of Christianity in the Roman world. The pagans defined Christians in a weird way. They said, see how they love one another? A constant refrain among people in the Roman world. See how they love one another is what they observed of the church. Josh Sharp and I um, we have breakfast most Wednesday mornings at Bagelicious on College Avenue. And the owner is there most mornings. And we've gotten to know him. And he finds us a little weird, Josh and I. <laughs> it's like, why, why do you guys always spend Wednesday mornings together? And he said, are, are you brothers? You know, in my first reaction was to say, oh, no, 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 we're not brothers. But really, right they said, wait, yeah, we are brothers. And our love for each other is based on something even greater than blood. It's based on Christ. Peculiar. Why these two guys would hang out on Wednesday morning having their sesame bagel and Asiago bagel and praying together and opening the word together because we love each other, because we're brothers. 
That's weird in Wisconsin culture, where blood is thicker than water, (laughs) where we really care about the family. The family wants something, that's the first place we're going to go. And the church says, you know what? There's even something greater than your earthly family. It's the church family. And in Wisconsin, it's true that people can find it weird, some churches, that talk about that. What? You hang around Latino people? Older people? People that are from a different social class? You, you want to hang out with them rather than always coming to us? Yes, because the blood of Christ is thicker than the blood of family. This isn't some directive of Paul. What does he say? You know, I, I have no need for anyone to write to you about this, for, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. This isn't some Paul teaching of this is how we, uh, you has to be, you have to just hang around each other, you have to be family. No. Paul says this love they have from each other is emanating from within, from God. The Holy Spirit is at work. That they love each other like family members. And this love is overflowing so much that it's going to other cities in Macedonia, to Berea and to Philippi, that this wealthy city of Thessalonica is now supporting other churches in the regions. Wow. Paul didn't even have to say anything about that. That's God working upon their hearts to do such great things. I think about that ourselves as a church. That we give many of our resources and our money to help other churches. You know, I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to bash Oshkosh, right? But we always think of Oshkosh as, you know, the brother or sister that doesn't as well off as Appleton. But, but we love Oshkosh. We love that city. We love what Josh is doing. We support him. We care for him. We want to see the gospel going forward throughout the valley. That should be the mark of Christianity. Well, the thing is, why does Paul do this? Why does he talk about this brotherly love? What is he setting up? Well, I think he's trying to say, you know, good stuff is happening. Something that I just don't have to direct. There's actually change happening in your life. And because this is happening, I can tell you that you shouldn't stop there. You should keep on going. He says, but we urge you, brothers, as he did in four, chapter 4, verse 1, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. See, the Christian life for Paul is not one of complacency. It's not one of sitting. It's not one of pressing the pause button. It's not one of saying, oh, look, I've arrived. I'm good. No. Paul encourages and urges and tells people, keep going in your love. Don't stop. 
right? A typical pastor. Isn't that what pastors do? Keep going. Keep working. I can see some people, you're, you turn off, you tune out at that point in time, right? Oh, the pastor's telling me to do something. What's he want now? Me to attend another retreat? Serve on another committee? Work in the nursery more? Is that what he's doing? If you think that's what the Christian life is about, doing more, you've missed it altogether. See, Paul isn't just telling them to do more. Instead, he's saying, I want God to become more and more in you. To invade every area of your life. Every area. Even your job. Even your work. See, it's not a coincidence that Paul goes from talking about sex to work and then to next week, death. You see, these are heavy topics. Even in our age, they're heavy topics. But they were incredibly heavy topics for the Thessalonians. I mean, these are topics too heavy and too grandiose for God to invade. Paul, listen, we're already peculiar. We're already weird. But now you're telling us that we should go against the sexual culture of Rome that permeates all of life? He's saying, yep. He's saying we should think about our jobs and work in a different ethic, in a different way? Yep. Man. God still reigns over those things? Yes, he does. So how does he? How does God work in our work? Well, I thought I might as well use a silly acronym today, right? Um, I'm realizing I might have to use acronyms. I, I, I hate, sometimes I don't like this as a pastor, like acronyms to make you remember, you know, so you walk away from the sermon with something, jazz hands and all those things. But after, um, after asking you guys, oh, what do you think of Danny's sermon? I asked many people and you guys were like, he's great. You should have him come back. And I said, well, what did you get out of his sermon? And when people can't tell me what they got out of it, I go, okay, we need to, I'm not, I'm not, being harsh on you guys, we might need something to make you remember something, okay? I know you probably got something out of it and just permeated all of your life, and you're fine now. You don't need to remember anything in particular, but today, we're going to remember this silly acronym. How's that sound? So the acronym we are going to use for today is JOB. Right, does that work? Okay. Okay. J for joy, O for obstacle, and B for beacon, Okay. Job. Okay, we're going to start with the negative one first of job. O for obstacle. And we're just going to kind of narrow in on two verses. Okay, these two verses. I'm going to read them again. Verse 11. 
I again urge you to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So in these two verses, we get an idea of what's happening in the Roman world and how they view work and then what Paul sees as the Christian ethic of work. So one is the aspirations of the Roman world for work. The aspiration was to get to a place where you didn't have to work. (laughs) That you didn't have to be an artisan. You didn't have to work with your hands. You didn't have to get down in the dirt. You see, the physical world for many of in the Roman world was evil, was bad. You had to transcend the physical world to the spiritual world. And the aspiration for many of the Romans and the Roman elites was to be able to get away from work. And then to make your name known. Your name would be etched into a column or on stones that you would have the good graces of Caesar. And if you were a person that was not this wealthy Roman elite, you would attach yourself to one of the Roman elites. They would become your patron. You'd go to their parties. You would sing their praises. You would side with their politics. You would gather at their place in the morning and sing how great they are. And in return, do you know what you'd get? Food, money, benefits. So great that as now a client of this patron, you wouldn't have to work either. You see, that was what was in the Thessalonian church. People were in these kind of relationships. Some people in the church were patrons. Some of them were clients. See, for Rome, it was an aspiration to live the retired life all the time. To avoid work. Because work is an obstacle. But what does Paul say in response to this? And to aspire, he says in verse 11, to live quietly. Aspire to live quietly. A play on words, right? Aspiring means, right, getting after it, going for it. So going for it to be quiet, it sounds kind of like an oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp, you know? But you see, these people, they aspire to be advocates on the political sides of others, to be known. And that's why they weren't quiet. They were in the world working to be on the side of these kind of people. And Paul says, don't live that kind of way. Don't live to be in the city and just receive benefits from these people. I'm not talking about quiet and not speaking. I'm being quiet, meaning you work with your hands. You don't make a scene. You don't aspire to stop working by being vocal in the community. But instead, you aspire by giving up your role as a client and taking on a job. 
I am so glad we are far from that Roman ideal, right, in America? We all aspire to live quiet lives, working lives, paying our mortgages, doing the diapers, you know, all those kids. We just aspire to live mundane lives. That's why all of us flock to American TV shows like The American Blue Collar Worker. Have you seen that show? Where people audition to live the most mundane life possible? You guys haven't seen that show? Do you know why? Because it doesn't exist. <laughs> that, jo- that show is not on TV. No, we have American Idol. We have The Voice. We have The Bachelor. The Bachelorette. We have The Kardashians. We have The Wise of Orange County. Those people don't aspire to work. (laughs) They aspire to get free from the mundane. To be famous. To be somebody. To be known. So glad we were so far from Hollywood, right? So far from New York City, we're in the Midwest. We're in Wisconsin. We don't dream that dream. Oh, we do. The grass is so much greener. That we would be fine. That we would not have to deal with the obstacle of work, that we would just overcome it, that we'd finally not have to deal with the mundane things. See, why does Paul say that we should go after a quiet life, a working life? He says, so you would be dependent on no one. Is he saying he doesn't value community? No, he says he values community and that we work together. Is he saying he wants radical independence? No, I don't think he's saying that. But what he's saying is that you would not be dependent in this patron system where you rely on someone else for your life. He's saying, I want you to be dependent dependent on the gifts that God has given you to do the work that he's called you to do. Work is simply not an obstacle. You know, there is this idea that if we have riches and fame, if we win American Idol, if we marry the right guy on the wives of Orange County or whatever it might be, we will overcome the obstacles of the working life. But I know you guys have seen the movie Ray, right? About Ray Charles. Or the Johnny Cash movie. Or any of those old school behind the music VH1 things, right? What happens when someone gets fame and glory and money? Are they no longer dependent on anything? (laughs) I encourage you, if you watch Johnny Cash and Ray Charles, you see that they are dependent on something. 
I do wonder, what would you be like if you were given, at one instance, tons of money and fame and power? You'd be a saint, right? You would finally not be dependent. You would be good. I wonder... I wonder if you've ever thanked God for a quiet life. You thank God that he has not given you success in the world so that your dependence would be on him rather than on yourself. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, that you've not given me everything I wanted. Because I would be a mess. Maybe work isn't an obstacle. Okay, so we got the O out of the way. And of course, I'm doing it all wrong because I used the, started with the wrong letter. So let's go backwards to J. To joy. Why work? Because it brings us Joy. Chapter 4, verse 1. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you recede from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing that you do so more and more. See, Paul is showing there is a sense of pleasing God even when it comes to sexual ethics, even when it comes to work, even when it comes how we think about death. There is joy in work. There is pleasing God in work. See, there's a misnomer in Christianity that says work entered the world because of the fall. Because Adam and Eve sinned, now we have work. Well, sorry to break it to you. There was work even before the fall. God worked. It's the first thing he did in existence. He created And then he gave Adam and Eve work to care for the garden. Then why do I dread it so much? (laughs) Why? What happened to work? Well, we do see the fall has tainted work. It's cursed the ground. The joy of raising children is not always a joy because they don't do what we want them to do. The joy of working with other people is not always amazing because they can be backbiting and harsh and mean. The joy of working with creative things in our hands, machines, whatever it might be, it isn't always a joy because they break down. Sometimes when we don't want them to. And there's something also, before the fall, it was not necessary for us to work for our sustenance. But now, because of the fall, we have to work to be able to eat, to live. And even when we utilize our best gifts, even when we're using what we are talented with, it crumbles and falls apart in front of us. And something we'd find satisfaction because we're good at it, it becomes incredibly frustrating. 
even in redemption, even when Christ has worked in our lives, even when Christ has come to this world, work still is fallen. So what do we do? I love to look at Christ when it comes to work. The very essence of the incarnation. God coming to earth in Jesus. See, God didn't avoid work in the fall. He came to earth. He came to work in the clay, in the dust. He came to be around us. You know, the Son of God was a carpenter. You realize that? The Son of God worked with his hands. He made water into wine with the same hands that he crafted something. He healed the blind with the same hands that he might have held his mother's hand. He made straight the broken. With the same hand, he might have hugged his brothers or sisters. But it just wasn't hunky-dory for Jesus. Do you think his work, he walked away and said, man, this is perfect work. I have found the ideal job. No. People didn't react the way that they should have to him. There were late hours when he probably didn't want to work, that he had to be around the crowds. He slept in uncomfortable places. He was weary. He was probably frustrated, not in a sinful way. But I encourage you to read the Garden of Gethsemane. Just how much pain there was for what he had to go through. Jesus did not have the perfect job in saying, He didn't have difficulties. He had difficulties in his work. But he had the perfect job in this, that he trusted in God to use the imperfection of his work for God's glory. That's where we can look at how Jesus had work in the right lens and used it in the right way and actually had joy in what he was doing. You know, it might bum some of you out to realize heaven isn't going to be lounging by the pool. Do you realize that? It's not going to be drinking mimosas all day. I love mimosas, you know, come on. But it's not going to be, I'm sure there's mimosas in heaven. Take that as a quote, okay? Yes, mimosas in heaven. I don't know, but. There's going to be work in heaven. And Revelation says, we will serve him in heaven. Now, it will not be a labor of of toil, but it will be creating things of beauty. Using maybe our skills of speech to say profound praises of God. Using our imagination to create wonderful things. Music. To use our care and nurture for others. To care and nurture for others in heaven. And it will be perfect. 
What joy will have? I mean, I am really using what God has given me in a perfect way. And there are glimpses of that here. You know that? I love what Tom Keller says. He's really good on work. He says, what does it mean to be a good Christian pilot? How do you be a good Christian pilot? He says, land the plane. (laughs) What does it mean to be a good Christian artist? Make beautiful music. A good Christian doctor to heal the sick. Now I can lecture about all these things about what it means to be a Christian at work, right? We need to be honest and ethical. We need to share our faith. We need to use the money that we gain from work to support the ministry into the church. You know, I could give that lecture, and those are great things. And that's for another scripture passage, not this one. See, work is not simply a means to an end. There is joy in the work itself. Could you imagine how hard of a teaching this would have been to the Thessalonians? Man, I'm not working because I'm getting all these benefits from these other people. You're telling me I have to take a hard job now? To work with my hands? I have to sweep the streets? I have to carry water? I might need to be a, a carpenter or a potter? And Paul is saying, yes, Because in those things, you are working for the Lord and he is using your gifts and it is going to bring you joy. There is is joy in work itself. (laughs) It's easy to say this to the Thessalonians, right? But I feel like if I say it to some of you, Say joy, if I say the word joy and your job in the same sentence, you might want to punch me in the face. I'm going to call some of you out. I'll do it. I can do that in a sermon. I know your jobs. I talk about your work, I visited your workplaces. And I've seen the way that God has placed you in a place using your gifts. When Adam Koenig cut stone at Beagle Stone, he is creative. He is a creative person, and God is using that for his joy. When Phil Stuffel uses tons, does tons of paperwork to get people from another nation here, is using the gifts that Phil has to do meticulous things to bring redemption to the world. When Jason Greenlee has to cut things to the right millimeter to fit something into a plane, it's using his eye for detail as a craftsman. When Mike Warner has to do spreadsheet after spreadsheet for Bemis, it uses his gift to see the big picture of how things come together. 
when my wife tells stories to my kids that she makes up on her own. It lets her use her gift of creativity and imagination to write. These are divine gifts. These are things from the Lord that he has given you. To bring joy to him. And one day, the monotony will be over. One day, the crumbling of your job will be done, and it will be done in perfection in heaven. But let's show a glimpse of that kingdom now. Joy. Work is not simply an obstacle. And lastly, it is a beacon. So in verse 12, he says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. See, Paul is warning them about being disruptive. Disruptive members of society. Some of these people are becoming burdens on the church and burdens on others. They don't utilize their skills to help others. They instead are just making noises and causing disruption in, in, in Thessalonica and it's causing division and problems. They're just a suck upon society. And Paul's saying, don't be that way. Be a light to the city. Be a light to other people in how you do things. Do re- make work redemptive. That you take systems that are broken And you fix them, sanitary work, garbage collection, an aqueduct in that day. Creative work, someone that draws beautiful paintings or sells pottery and shows their art around the city. Justice work, city officials or officers or soldiers that bring justice to Brokenness and sin, compassionate work, people that care for the least and the last and the lost, for orphans, revelatory work, mathematicians or philosophers, people that reveal truth about how the world works. See, these things are good for the city, and it will show people the reconciling work of the gospel and how God uses work to show forth his kingdom. You know, it's kind of amazing. I went to New Orleans last week. And when you tell people you're going to New Orleans or you've come from New Orleans, the responses that people give you, it's usually extremes. Oh, that place is the den of iniquity. (laughs) But it's got great food. (laughs) You know, that place, oh man, it smells horrible. But you got to have a beignet. You know, and that was really true when I went there. You see the worst of culture and you see the greatest of it. You know, you work, walk down Bourbon Street now with my kids and you see 
people passed out on the street. You see buildings that house things that are not good. But at the same time, I saw the guy sweeping the streets and probably making it smell better than it could have. And I see, as I look up above those dens of iniquity, the beauty of the architecture. And where I saw it the most was this. My brother-in-law and I, we went to church together on, on Sunday morning and we drove down like the trolley center down the middle of the street and there's people running on it and the trolley goes down the middle of the street and there's beautiful houses and there's all types of different people. And as we got to this building, this old church, we stepped outside and people were running. It's very outdoorsy. People um, outdoors walking. Out from this church, we heard the saxophone play and the piano play. And it was beautiful music. And we saw people walking into the church. And I learned that the most of the people in the church had come to live in that city right after Katrina. The pastor, too, said, we are coming to this city. Now this church, you know, had been planted and they had planted other churches and it was gorgeous and it was beautiful. And I saw people that had all different types of jobs and different colors and using different gifts and guys playing the saxophone and playing the trumpet and playing the piano. And I said, Oh my word, look. Look at how people are using their gifts for the glory of what the city will become. It is a beacon. Ordinary lives. Ordinary people. Is that what we want to be as a church? That we do our work well. We sweep the streets so that they would smell better. That we play a horn or we play our musical instrument so people can hear the beauty of what God is. That we change the diapers of our kids and love them so that they love others in their school and around their neighborhood. That we would do our work well because we say, God has made me for this. Made me for a purpose where I don't simply complain. I don't simply say my work sucks or whatever language you want to use for it. They would say, guess what? God has a purpose for me. He has me here in my job and I will do it with joy because I know I have a God that made me for something. And others will say, Look at the reconciling work of that individual. I want to be part of that too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that you would invade our work. That you even have control over that. 
And I know there's some people here that they even dread Sunday because it's closer to Monday. There are some people here that say, I will never smile at my job. God, I pray that you would reach into their hearts. That you would show them how you've made them for purpose. It's more than just the weekend. It's more than just vacation. It's even in their work. In your son's name we pray. Amen.